Uh, this morning, I want to start by telling you about a man, a rich and powerful man who was an elected official, an important guy with almost unlimited authority and influence and resources. And he was happy. He had a wife whom he loved, and she was pregnant with their child. And as the days grew near for the child to be born, he was more and more excited. And, you know, they decided on a name for the child, the name Sid. And uh, they thought that had a nice ring to it, and they had talked, as parents tend to do, about what would happen uh, with this young child, what he would be when he grew up. And they were sure, because his parents were quite great, that he was destined for greatness. But then... Sadly, when the child was born, uh, the man's wife uh, had a horrible labor and, and, and a horrible uh, aftermath, and a few days after, she passed away. And suddenly, this man's whole world, which had been nothing but promise and positivity, uh, became very dark and very bleak. And, and he was, of course, a man who, who governed and dealt with the problems of people, and now he was wrapped up in his own grief and suffering and sadness and he made a decision in his mind that little Sid would not know the kind of suffering and sorrow and sadness that he knew. The kind of suffering that he saw when he looked out at his constituents that he was governing. That he would protect little Sid. He would kind of put a bubble around him and he would keep him from knowing this sort of pain. So there would be no outsiders who had troubles or sicknesses or anything coming in and bringing their troubles with them. No, he, he would be insulated from that. There would not be any religious instruction, which was a normal part of their culture. But because religion is generally a response to human suffering, at least to some degree, and how we can make sense of it and understand our, our, our suffering in light of there being a God, he decided to leave that out as well. And he told this, this young man, you are destined for greatness, to be a prince. But he kind of kept him away from the normal princely duties, like dealing with real-world problems. And he successfully, for a ridiculously long time, protected him. Whenever he felt pain, he swooped in and he made everything better. And he gave him another house. He had multiple mansions in different places for different seasons. He had everything he could ever want. And then one day, Sid left the walls of the compound in which he lived to go and meet with one of the people in his kingdom. And on the way there, he saw an incredibly old man. And he was frail. And he was weak. And, and Sid said, what is going on with this guy? And the driver said, well, everyone gets old. That's something that happens. Is, unless you die young, everyone gets old and they become uh, it's weaker than they were, and then sickness overtakes him, and eventually they die. And this really rocked Sid's world. And so he went back and began to plan more and more of these kind of excursions and would sneak out. And he saw things. He saw diseased people. He saw blind children. He saw decaying corpses. And he became so horrified by this bubble he'd been raised in that he, he just left and he swore off all of his father's wealth and everything, every advantage that he had. And for a while, he thought that he could understand the world by becoming the, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor instead of the richest of the rich. And he begged for food in the streets. 
And when that didn't seem to be satisfying, he kind of bounced from guru to yogi to spiritual teacher. And wherever he went, he mastered whatever kind of philosophy or meditation or whatever was being taught. And when that didn't satisfy him, he became an ascetic, someone who punishes the body. And he would live on a single nut or a single leaf each day. That almost led to his death. He actually passed out into a river and barely, uh, barely avoided drowning when a woman fished him out. Finally, he said, I'm so tired of all this. I need to know what it's all about. He sat down under a tree and said, I'm not leaving this place until I have total enlightenment. And he meditated, so the story goes, for seven weeks and suddenly had an epiphany and he discovered and introduced to a number of followers something that he called the middle way. In between extreme physical gratification and having everything you want and extreme asceticism and punishing yourself and having nothing this middle way. And people now know Sid, whose full name is Sid Hartha, as the Buddha who invented the, the four noble truths, all of which are about suffering and how to transcend it. And, and the eightfold path, which involves uh, wisdom and meditation and, and moral virtue and moral effort, which are all resulting in one finally being freed from this endless cycle of suffering that humans find themselves in. And many millions of people follow these things today. And if there's one thing we can see as we look at this story, it's that you cannot avoid suffering. It doesn't matter how much money you have, power you have. This guy, he was, he was an oligarch. He, he, he had anything he wanted, almost unlimited resources, and yet everyone will endure pain. We can't avoid it. We can't shield ourselves or our children from it. And so people have different ways of dealing with suffering. Many people try to tell themselves it's a mirage. It's not even real. It's just something, you know, mind over matter. We have to transcend it. Others try to make sense of it and say, well, it's karma. Uh, it's, it's punishments for something that I've done bad, either in this life or perhaps a former life. Others will tell you it's just negative energy. Negative vibes in you that you have to overcome. It's stinking thinking. And, and, and you, have to, you have to visualize the reality you want. There are even a number of ostensibly Christian teachers who teach such nonsense. But the scriptures give us an entirely different understanding of suffering and what it means and, and why it's here. We understand that thorns and sickness and death enter the picture of God's perfect shalom when sin enters. And so that suffering in the world is a result of the curse on the world. But it isn't just that. God redeems these things and uses them for His glory and for the good of those who love Him. And we see in 2 Corinthians that God has a very specific reason why He permits even His kind of top lieutenants like St. Paul to suffer and to suffer greatly and to suffer for the gospel. Before we talk about that, though, let's just do a very brief uh, introduction to this book. It's been three years since we taught all the way through First. Corinthians and had a look at that. Now, 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. It should maybe be called 4th Corinthians, only we only have two of them. Uh, the first one is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, and it's a letter uh, that 
uh, came to the church from Paul, was delivered, uh, I think, by Timothy, is the understanding we have. Uh, and then Paul and Timothy had gone to Corinth on Paul's second missionary journey. And, and of course, Paul had founded this church in Corinth. So he was to them a spiritual father, as well as being an apostle of Jesus Christ. The second letter he wrote is the one we call 1 Corinthians. Yeah, I know that's a little confusing. Uh, and this is the one that we studied. It was largely about divisions in the church and how that does not please God. It was also about immorality and living in a world where Christian values and Christian teachings are not only not the norm, they are mocked and they are hated. In fact, uh, that was the idea that behind the sermon series, the name of the sermon series, living in a post-Christian world by looking at how these Christians were taught to live in a pre-Christian world. Then there is a tearful and severe letter. That's what Paul calls it. An angry slash sad letter that, sadly, we don't have. It's mentioned uh, in 2 Corinthians. And Titus brings that letter to Corinth. And it involves following up on some issues uh, they were having. And, and Titus is there with them for a while. And he reads them Paul's letter. And he tries to walk them through some of the difficulties that they are having. And then for a while, as you follow Paul's wanderings, you find he can't find Titus. He's worried that he's lying dead in a gutter somewhere. And when they finally reunite, Titus says, I've got some good news, but some also not so encouraging news about the church in Corinth. There were still false teachers there. There was still a rebellious minority who rejected Paul's apostleship and rejected the gospel that he taught, even though he was the one who formed that church and brought them the good news of Jesus Christ to begin with. And so as Paul was on his way to visit them a third time, while he was in Philippi probably, a little less than a year after he wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote them this letter. As a father who was concerned as one who had been challenged by false teachers. And he wrote to explain why he hadn't been there yet, because apparently he had told them he had plans to come. He came to follow up on some of the issues from 1 Corinthians, we'll see that, to address a few miscellaneous problems in the church, and most of all, to deal once and for all with these posers, whom he calls, and I love this, super apostles. That's tongue-in-cheek. These super apostles who had come in and said that, that Paul, he, he was trying hard, but he was all talk. When, when you saw him in person, he wasn't impressive. On the page, he looked good, but, but he was all talk. He wasn't a real winner or go-getter. That he was a flip-flopper. He's a Greek with the Greeks. He's a Jew with the Jews. He can't make up his mind. And that Paul had suffered too much to be a spirit-filled apostle of the risen Christ. So St. Paul is writing to defend his own apostleship. They said, he's, why has he been through all this stuff? I mean, you can read his writings and he talks about being a day and night on the open sea and being flogged and beaten and bit by snakes and all these things. Why would that happen to him if he was really an apostle of the risen Christ? Obviously, if he was really on the winning team, he'd be a winner like us. Instead, he's a loser and he's suffering all the time. That was the understanding. Because these false apostles were teaching then, as they are teaching now, that to be a Christian with a lot of faith means a life that is trouble-free, that is healthy and always happy and always winning and always up, up, up. And to have a smile so bright you can blind people with it, even from the cover of your books. 
This is a very personal, very emotional letter. There's often very kind of violent changes of subject, and you're like, where's the Paul I know with his cool segues? He's too worked up. We learn a number of things about this man that we would not otherwise know because of that. It's almost like an autobiography mixed with a missionary support letter. Here's why I am an apostle. Here's why it matters that I have suffered and I've suffered on your behalf and I've suffered for the gospel. And here's why you should continue to support the work, including an offering that Timothy and Titus and Paul have all told them about that they are taking for the suffering church in Jerusalem that Paul hopes soon to collect. So that's the background. And we are briefly this morning going to go just through this this introduction, the first seven verses of 2 Corinthians and see how Paul sets the tone from the very beginning about the themes of this letter. It begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins, as he often does, identifying himself as an apostle. He doesn't always. Sometimes it's a slave of Christ. Sometimes it's a servant of Christ. So there's different things that he describes himself. But here, he emphasizes that he's an apostle. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostello, which means to send out. So he's one who's sent out, and it's become a formal title at this point. When you read the Old Testament translated into Greek, which is what Jesus and the, and the disciples and the apostles probably used, you see that this word, it has a formal meaning uh, to designate people who've been commissioned as official representatives to, to have authority to act and speak in the name of the one who sent them. For example, remember God says to Moses, I send you to Pharaoh on my behalf. You're an official emissary for me. The apostles are said again and again to be sent with this same word. And Paul is claiming that for himself. I'm, I'm an apostle. I'm sent to you with an authoritative word from God. As with 1 Corinthians 1.1 and 1 Peter 1.1, and for that matter, the beginning of John, he emphasizes that it's not by his own efforts or decision that he's become an apostle. No, no, no. It is by the will of God that he has gone from being an enemy of God, persecuting the church, to now being a servant of God and an apostle in his holy church. And he emphasizes it here all the more because his status as an apostle has been challenged. So it's from Paul the apostle, and it is to the church of God in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. I think this is important. He's writing to the church and the saints. The saints actually is just the word holy. He's writing to the holies. It's still an adjective even. So we'd say maybe holy ones. Those who are holy. Those who make up the holy church. And remember, Corinth is a place of absolute infamous sin. It's the capital of Achaia, which is in modern day Greece. It was a major seaport. It was a major center for trade. There were many sailors and merchants coming through all the time. No offense, Terry, but you know what they say when you get a lot of sailors coming through. There, there, there was an absolute center for all kinds of trade, including these trades of ill repute that we, might, we, we all know about. It was a, a center for pagan temples and the sexual immorality that went along with idol worship. In fact, there was a word that was a verbal form of the word Corinth, We might say Corinthianize, which basically meant fornicate. 
Hey, I'm looking at Corinthianize tonight. This, this is how infamous this city was, and yet in the midst of this city, there's a church. And yes, they struggle with it. Just like in the midst of the post-Christian culture we live in today. There are churches, there is a holy universal church, and we struggle to, to remain faithful and to know how to interact with a world that is hostile to the gospel. And yet, even with all their struggles with sin, even with all their confusion, even with false teachers being in there in the midst, he says this is to the church in Corinth. The holy ones, the saints, the, the church is still there. The saints are still holy even when they trip and stumble and fall. God picks them up and they are still holy. Jesus said, I will keep the gates of hell from prevailing against my church. I will build it, I will defend it, and it will not fall. One of our earliest Baptist icons, Roger Williams, missed this. He had a great start as a Baptist. He founded Providence, Rhode Island, where people of different kinds of Christianity could all meet together. No one's persecuting anyone, and we're so thankful for that. But not long after that, he abandoned the Baptist church and tried something else, then tried something else, then tried something else, and eventually said, I don't think there is a true church, because there's hypocrites in all of them, and there's problems in all of them, and I think there's some false teaching in all of them. And eventually, he just gave up and became what they called a seeker, someone who thinks there's no real church, no true church on earth. Well, St. Paul, speaking with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begs to differ. There's a church even in the midst of Corinth. There's a church wherever you go, you will find a remnant of believers in Jesus Christ. So he begins with the standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We might be tempted to just skim over that, but I think it's worth noting that every time this greeting comes, grace comes first and then peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace comes before there can be peace. That's the experience of every Christian. That we were an enmity with God by our sin. Jesus says those who believe not in the Son stand condemned already. And so there's enmity. There's no peace. And we know there's no peace. Siddhartha knew there was no peace. People everywhere know there is no peace. That's why they're reaching out to reconnect to their Creator. And only when God offers His grace can there truly be peace. His grace comes through the Son, Jesus Christ, and His death on a cross for our sin. And His resurrection for our sins to be no longer counted against us, but for us to be righteous with the righteousness of Christ. That's His grace. And when that grace has been received, then there can be peace. No moral virtue or moral effort can bring us there. No human wisdom, no meditation, nothing but the grace of God can bring us peace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now, because he has this peace, even though this is a letter that focuses largely on his sufferings, his first words are words of praise to God. He mentions mercies and comfort before he speaks about afflictions or trials or trouble. The tribulation of believers is not inconsistent with God's mercy. It does not make us doubt God's mercy. It may in the moment, but when we look back and we see that He has been with us all along and He has been working in our lives all along, we recognize there was grace, there was peace. 
There were mercies new every morning, and He was comforting us. You ever heard of Margaret Powers? Probably not, but you know her poem, Footprints in the Sand. It's always struck me as a little cheesy, and it still does. But it comes out of a wonderful experience. A woman who, who had been through so much difficulty in her life and did really have this dream that she was walking down and, and she had, uh, that, that evening had gotten to the point in her life where she said, God, have you abandoned me too along with everyone else? And, and in her dream, she looked back and, and there was a portion of footsteps and she kept looking at where there was only one. There were two sets here when things were easy. There was one here, there were two sets. And she asked the Lord, why does it look like you've abandoned me in the most difficult times? And he said, no, that's when I was carrying you. Now, that's not scripture. That's someone's dream, but that'll preach. And if you've been through something difficult, you know there are those times when in the moment you thought, God, you've abandoned me, and looking back, you see he has not. He's the Father of all mercies, according to this passage. The source of all mercy. And mercies, by the way, always plural in the New Testament, never singular. Mercies. These mercies, because they are they're manifold, they are unending and various and diverse, the ways in which God shows us mercy. It's always plural. Look for the mercies in every day. His mercies are new every morning we sing. He is showing you the moment you open your eyes mercy, in that you're able to open them. If you are not blind, in that you can see. If you are able to sit up, in that you are able to sit up. Our God is the source, the Father of all mercies, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we were ourselves are comforted by God. That's a mouthful. Let me read that one more time. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's as if in comforting us through the Holy Spirit, it's not just an action. He's giving us something. Here's some comfort. We receive it. And now we have it. And we can use that very comfort to comfort others as they are afflicted. There is a reason in this. Now, we, we do not want to fall into this fatalistic understanding that when something bad happens to us, well, God must have wanted this to happen because he's got some grand scheme that, that requires this. Again, we talked about how sin entering the world, the curse of sin entering the world, brought suffering and pain and evil into the world. But God is about redeeming. And so in his sovereignty, he uses even these things that are the result of sin, that are outside of his moral will for his purposes, to build his people, to redeem, because he is a God of love and many, many mercies. And so we understand that to be comforted by him is not necessarily to have our suffering immediately removed. If that were the case, people would turn to him out of self-interest rather than out of love. Rather, he gives us peace grants us strength, and buoys us with hope. And the more trials we face, the more comfort he gives. The psalmist writes in Psalm 94, When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, thy consolations delight my soul. We saw in 1 Peter that one of the things God does with our sufferings, especially our sufferings for him, for the gospel, 
is he uses them to refine us, to refine our hearts. Like if you put uh, an impure metal into a very hot fire, it will burn away the dross and refine. And that is something that God is doing. But here in 2 Corinthians, we see that there is another purpose. That one of God's purposes in permitting suffering of Christians is that we would experience direct personal comfort from him and from that experience be able to minister God's own comfort to others. You know, in the 80s, when the Soviet cosmonauts returned to Earth after 326 days in orbit, they found that this, this guy was in good health, but that hadn't always been the case. They, they were excited that they had finally figured out how to bypass this horrible re-entry process that all of these cosmonauts before had had. Five years earlier, after 211 days, Two cosmonauts came out, and they were just a wreck. They were dizzy all the time. Their, their hearts were banging away. They couldn't catch up. They had heart palpitations. They couldn't walk for a week. And after 30 days, we're still undergoing therapy for all these atrophied muscles that hadn't been used. You see, in, in zero gravity, you don't really use your muscles much at all, and they begin to waste away. And so to counteract this, they prescribed a vigorous exercise program. They had these suits with all these bands that made all sorts of resistance with any little motion, and it kept their, their muscles working. It kept their hearts pounding. They called the thing the penguin suit, which that's got a little bit goofy, but it, it saved all sorts of suffering for these people, and, and it resisted every motion. And, you know, we often long for days without difficulty. Can't I just have a year where nothing is painful, nothing hurts, nothing happens, and I can just sort of float along. But God knows, the weaker our spiritual fiber, the less we're able to comfort others. The less we're, be, we're able to be His servants, His ambassadors to a world that is hurting. And so for strength of any kind, we need to have exertion. There's got to be resistance. And God comforting us then is, is another example of His mercies. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Because Christ endured the worst of the afflictions that the world had to offer, he can comfort us in all of them. And because he can comfort Paul, Paul could receive comfort in horrendous afflictions that he endured, and he was then able to turn and comfort the Corinthians. This is a beautiful cycle, not the endless cycle of suffering that Siddhartha was trying to get out of by attaining nirvana, but a cycle that says, I can use what God is doing in me in the midst of my pain to bring you comfort as well. What Jesus endured is beyond our ability to understand. It's foreshadowed in Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. In Hebrews 4, we're reminded, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. Christ endured it all on our behalf. He didn't turn against God. He didn't, he didn't complain about His mission to come and redeem mankind. No, He went like a sheep to the slaughter silently and endured on our behalf every kind of suffering. And now, as Paul says, I'm walking in the footsteps of Christ and suffering so that I may bring you comfort. His opponents are claiming that his sufferings disqualify him as an apostle. How frustrating must this have been? You're suffering. You're not living the dream. If you really were on the winning team with Jesus, you would be living the dream. You'd be dressing well like us. You'd be eloquent like we are. You'd be bringing in more people like we do when we have our events. But Paul maintains that his sufferings are the way that God strengthens other believers. The fact is that everyone suffers in this life. And as Christians, Jesus promised in this world, you will have trouble. And he even promised that if you follow me, people will mock you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things because of me, in mind, because you are associated with me. You may even be brought and put to death for my name. And yet, we know that those who are outside of Christ, for them, suffering is only a reminder of the curse of sin that remains. For believers, however, our suffering conforms us to Christ. And when we suffer for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus, we know that as we are comforted deep in our souls by the Holy Spirit, something is being built up that someday we then can turn to someone else. And this is all about compassion. Jesus' whole life was marked entirely by compassion. Anything that Jesus encountered that you and I would be like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Jesus was moved by compassion. There were a few times when he got angry because of a lack of compassion in the religious system. But whenever he encountered hurting individuals who lashed out, hurting individuals who turned to some life of sin to try and fill the void inside of them, he was moved by compassion. You know where we get our word in English, compassion? It's from Latin, come, meaning with, pati, meaning suffer. Suffer with. Christ came down and he suffered with us and he suffered for us. And if we are going to be Christ-like, we've got to be willing to show compassion, to suffer with one another. It's a big difference when someone is suffering, going through something difficult. It's a big difference between saying, hey, I went through something similar. Let me tell you how I got to the other side and now I'm all better. And sitting down next to them, saying not a word, crying with them being silent with them, sitting with them, suffering with them. In the church of Jesus Christ, that is how we deal with suffering. We know that God can redeem even the stuff that comes from sin entering the world. We know He's conquered sin. We know when He comes again, He will wipe away every tear from our eye. We know He will do away with sin once and for all and with all of its effects. And in the meantime, we know He is refining us as a gold refined with fire and he is equipping us. The comfort of Christ is something almost tangible. You know, when I used to play video games, there were the video games that you'd walk around and you'd be like, oh, pick that thing up. Bloop, you can use that later. That's what suffering and comfort is like in the Christian life. Here is comfort. Don't just take it, hug it for a moment, and release it. Hang on to that. Later on, God will use you to comfort someone else. You will be Jesus to someone else. What an honor this is. 
And when we are tempted to look at the church the way the world wants us to look at the church, and the world shows us they want us to look at the church this way by buying millions and millions of books and tuning in in droves to different programs, we cannot fall into that trap. That to be a Christian looks like success by the world's metrics. To be a Christian looks like suffering for Jesus Christ, receiving his comfort and willing to be compassionate to suffer with one another, with the least of these, to go and sit with someone, to go and, and, and not judge them, but rather just say, yes, I know this must be difficult. I don't even know what to say, but I'm here with you. I'm here for you. Let me pray with you. Let me pray for you. I don't have the easy answers, but I know that God is at work here. And I know that Christ promised that in the end, He will come back. He will take us to a place with no suffering whatsoever. There will be a new heavens and new earth, and things will be as they should be. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we don't have to fake the kind of success that the super apostles did. That, Lord, we don't have to be people who are somehow above being hurt, being wounded, that, Lord, we can embrace suffering knowing that you bring comfort, that your comfort is our comfort, that our suffering is your suffering, according to this passage, and knowing that when we are comforted, we are equipped to comfort others. Lord, may we see this as a privilege, an honor, a sacred duty that we can carry out with your blessing. Lord, may we never forget we've been given this gift, the comfort of Christ, And may we never fail to use it. In your holy name we pray. Amen.